Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. This is, uh, again, continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark that we started last semester, hopefully finishing the Gospel uh, this semester. And, of course, we're skipping a few places around. Uh, Tonight we're thinking about relationships, particularly marriage and divorce and what Jesus thinks of it and uh, how Jesus has entered into that experience uh, in order to help us. Before we read the text, I want you to consider a famous movie, The Prince Appears, on the castle wall, the peasant people bow down in respect before him as he announces his engagement and introduces his bride-to-be, Princess Buttercup. Y'all remember this story, don't you? You remember Princess Bride, Wesley, and Buttercup? They had found Twoob. You know the story. Wesley was off to make his fortune in order to provide for her, then was assumed to be dead, then comes back as the man in black to rescue her, right? But he gets arrested, he gets tortured. Princess Buttercup is taken to be the king's. Well, there she is. The spotlight has now turned on the beautiful princess. Within the crowd, as the crowd hushes, she steps forward when a frail old woman rises up crying, Boo! 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 You remember this? Don't you remember this? Bow down to the queen of scum, the queen of refuse, the queen of putrescence. I don't even know what that is. Yes, okay. Boo, boo, boo! She cried, right? But... But why do you say this, says Princess Buttercup? Because you had love in your hands and you gave it up, is the reply. We love a good fairy tale, don't we? A good love story with a happy ending. And in the end, the valiant and noble Wesley prevails. Frees her from the evil prince. Wins her love, takes her home. Buttercup gets her man. She finds true love. And they live happily ever after. But it doesn't always work out that way in the real world, does it? It didn't work out that way for some of our parents. Reality is far harsher than fairy tales. And tonight we want to think about relationships. Jesus addresses this issue of marriage and the realities of divorce. And I think he has... Not only good counsel for us, but we want to think through uh, how it shows us his own love tonight and then make some applications. And so let me invite you to consider Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 this evening. This is God's word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let's, let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, would you teach us your word now? Would you come and minister to us? Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You know how to pastor souls. Do so. I, I pray that the words of my mouth would be restrained um, from anything which is wrong. And that the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, would, would dwell on your word and be acceptable in your sight through you. So do good to us tonight. Meet with us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the text tells us about marriage and divorce, which is a painful subject for many people. Whether you've tasted it or not, you know dozens of people or friends who have in their parents' marriage. For many people who have walked through divorce of their own parents or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries with it all kinds of weight of sorrow and loss, disappointment, anger. There are very very few things more painful than divorce. When my brother-in-law told me he was divorcing my sister, I, I told him, you know, you know what this will be for your children? This will be worse than your death for your kids. Now, he didn't believe me and he went through with it, and there are reasons for that. But, but divorce can be far more painful uh, than the death, much more painful, it be, in part because it, it, it's a dirty kind of pain. It, it, it's accompanied with the ugliness of sin in so many cases. And so this text tonight is, is hard. And in a culture where divorce is rampant, I can only imagine how difficult it may be, either for you or for people you know really well. And so, but we want to think about it. We don't, we, don't want to, we don't want to pretend it doesn't exist. We don't, we don't want to pretend that Jesus hasn't talked about it. We want to ask, well, what is Jesus teaching us here about our romantic relationships? You have, you have hopes and dreams, uh, undoubtedly, uh, for your own future. And there isn't a soul of you who will go to the altar and say, I do, with, with a shadow of intent of divorce. And yet, statistics say, many will divorce. And so, uh, we want to think about this tonight. We also want to think about, well, what does this really teach us about Jesus in the midst of it? And I want to highlight three things it teaches about Jesus and make five very pointed applications to you. But three things in the first place... It, It shows you about him. It shows you his love. It shows you his patience. It shows you his faithfulness. And I want you to see how that shows up in the text and then apply it. In the first place, notice at verse 2, as Jesus enters into this debate, I want you to see how this actually shows that he loves and cares for people. 
And because of that, we can trust him with our relationships. In verse 2, these Pharisees come, these religious leaders come, and they ask him this very pointed question. Well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the question. But not, understand, they're not asking that question because they care about people. Not because they want help in helping people. They don't want Jesus' you know, sage pastoral advice in order to, to really help people. They're trying to trap Jesus in a difficult question of the day. Because they want to hammer Jesus with whatever answer he gives. So they're not interested in marriage. You understand that? Or people here. That's not the point. But Jesus, in answering them, is showing you that he really is. Because he cares. And he wants to improve people's marriages. He wants to help people in difficult places. And Jesus knows that even the truth is good for people to hear, even if it hurts to hear it. And so he gets into the discussion. He enters the debate with them. Now, it's helpful to recognize that the people he's debating with um, lived in a culture in which the Pharisees were, um, were very loose on the issue of divorce. There were, there, were, there were really two main teaching views. Rabbi Shammai held a very strict view at this time in history. We know this from other places. He said, basically, um, a man can divorce his wife if she does something improper or shameful. And that meant either unchastity or adultery. He was very strict. Unchastity, adultery, that's it. But there was uh, Rabbi Hillel who was very loose on this issue. He said, quote, if she finds no favor in his eyes, then he's permitted to divorce her for almost any reason at all, including if she burns the toast, if she oversalts the food, if she talks so loud in the home that the neighbors can hear hers, or if she speaks to a male stranger. Rabbi Hillel said that was cause enough if the man... Found, if she found no favor in her husband's eyes, he could divorce her. Okay, that's the culture. And Jesus enters into the fray because he cares about what God made relationships for. He cares about what the original plan was for men and women. And he cares about people suffering the pain of broken relationships. And so he's, he enters. I just want you to see that. That's, why, that's, that's behind why he engages Though that has nothing to do with why they've asked him the question. Now, second thing I want you to see in verses 3 through 9, in this long discussion, what does Jesus say? And in him saying it, I want you to see his patience with broken people. He's realistic, but he's patient with broken people. And that is a reason why you and I can depend on him. Okay? depend on his grace in our relationships. Jesus knew the Pharisees defended their divorces, so he asks them a question in return. Well, what did Moses command you? Okay? And, and they go right to Deuteronomy 24. This is where their response comes from. They refer to where Moses there permits and regulates divorce. Okay? And Jesus then turns around and schools them in their own book. Okay? He takes them, instead of to Deuteronomy 24, he takes them to the original creation. What God originally made male and female for in Genesis 1 and 2, right? So he says uh, in, in, you know, in verses 6 through 8, look, 
this is not how it was in the beginning. Moses saying that you can divorce. That's not how it was designed. God made the male and female that the two should become one flesh and remain so. So that's where Jesus returns. The two become one in union. The, the sexual aspect of the relationship is, is a visible witness to the two actually becoming one. But they become one uh, in finances. They become one in, uh, in living together. They become one socially as a couple. They're off limits. Or they're supposed to be to others. They, they become one in, in all kinds of ways when they get married. God, it says, actually unites them. God joins them. I know you stand before an altar and you say your I do's and a priest or a pastor or a justice of the peace says, well, now you're married legally. And before the government and courts, okay, that's how they handle it. But it's God who actually joins you together. Now, the Pharisees are quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. They've skipped all the creation stuff. They've gone right to Moses permitting a man to divorce his wife. Okay. Now understand this, God wasn't, therefore, when Moses permitted it, wasn't giving his stamp of approval on divorce. He isn't commanding divorce. What was God doing in, in Deuteronomy 24? He was permitting and regulating a difficult situation so it would not become more difficult. Jesus says, Moses gave you this rule that a man can divorce his wife. Because of your hard heart. Mark 10.5, he says, it's because of, of man's hard heart that he allowed this. Now, you understand what Jesus is saying? He, he's recognizing that in a, in, a, in a marriage between two sinful people, the man has the upper hand in, in acts of violence. Okay, In, in a culture like that, in, in, in ancient Israel and most cultures throughout the history of the world, the man has the upper hand. And a hard-hearted man who won't live with his wife, who won't love his wife, who won't sleep with his wife, won't forgive his wife, who wants a new wife, what's he likely to do if he can't divorce her but he hates her? He's going to get out of it somehow. And, and more often than not, what you see is violence break out because of the hard-heartedness of the man. And so what is God doing when Moses gives a command? Well, you can divorce. He's protecting the wife. He's letting him divorce her. But you make sure you give her a written certificate of divorce. He has to give her a written document, thereby proving that she wasn't married anymore. And that secures for her, therefore, the ability to get married again so that she isn't left destitute in a culture that would despise her otherwise. In a culture in which she's less likely to find work than the man. And God makes certain in that Deuteronomy 24 passage, if you want to look there, he makes certain that she can't be traded around like a piece of property. When he says to the guy who divorced her, you can't remarry her. What was God saying? God was saying, you think real hard before you divorce her because you can't have her back if you do. You can't trade her around like she's a piece of property. That would have protected the woman in so many ways. 
But the rabbis, what did they do? They took God's gracious provision in allowing divorce as his approval of divorce. Permitting it versus versus really approving of it. And so they got really lax and loose and let divorce happen like crazy. And Jesus, absolutely realistic about hard-heartedness, patient with broken people, knowing that broken people will do all kinds of vile things to one another. He, as the eternal God who gave the scripture, that's what we believe about Jesus, is the one who actually permitted it out of patience, out of love, in order to limit and restrain worse things from happening. You've got to understand that. We who live in America in the divorce capital of the world should realize that quick and easy divorce is a sign of hard-heartedness. That we as a people, as evidenced by the quantity of divorces, are not tender-hearted people. We're not good lovers. We're not faithful companions. We're cold, mean, stubborn, unforgiving, resentful, grudge-holding. That's who we are. People who can't hold relationships together. And Jesus cares about us. So much so, so much so that he offered himself in death on a cross to bear our sins away that we should never experience from God what our hard-hearted sin deserves. And he bore it away. That is how much he loves you. And to create in us tender hearts. And forgiving hearts, so that two hearts can live for a lifetime as one, being gracious with one another as sinners. This is God's design. How do you do that? Because you know how gracious Jesus has been with you. That is the only way you will ever make your relationship work. Look, I know you think you're going to marry the right guy, the perfect guy, and he's awesome. He's going to love you well every day. And I know you guys are thinking the same thing of her. But the truth is, you're going to wake up on your honeymoon a selfish, self-centered, self-interested person who's going to be hard to live with. That's the reality. I know you want the fantasy of the princess bride. It's all happily ever after, after the hard stuff is out of the way. But but what marriage calls for, and this is the beauty and sweetness of it, marriage calls for forgiving one another and accepting one another as God in Christ has forgiven and accepted you. You extend the beauty of the gospel to your spouse. And so you and I need to drink deeply of that gospel if we're going to have a good marriage. And I I just want you to see that. Jesus actually is the one who gave the command permitting divorce in the first place and says, That's not my heart, but I'm patient with broken people. I don't want to make the best of a terrible situation with hard-hearted people. And the third thing I want you to see is not only Jesus' love and his patience, but I want you to see his faithfulness. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus comes back to his disciples who've come back to him in the house asking him privately, all right, help us out here a little bit more. We're not sure we're hearing correctly, Jesus. This sounds really hard. And he says to them, look, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And the wife who divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery. And what I want you to see is that unlike that, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful in his marriage, by contrast. 
And so we ought to look for help in our relationships to help us be faithful. Why, let me, let's, let's talk through this a little bit. What's behind Jesus engaging in this public disagreement about marriage? Well, we've already said his love for people. We've already said his desire for us to live as God intended us to, his care for and patience with broken people. But there's something else that lies behind his engaging this discussion, and it is this. Okay, he, he wants to uphold the integrity of the gospel itself. Marriage among Christians is meant to tell the story of the gospel. It's meant to be a human reenactment of the greatest love story ever told. The picture of God marrying his people. The picture of Jesus taking home to his own heart a bride, the church. That's what marriage is really designed to be. Think of, think of the vow in marriage. What, what, are the two, what, what does the couple say? The traditional vow is something like this. I promise and covenant between God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in uh, poverty and in riches, as long as we both shall live. Okay? Uh, think what that says. It says, if you make me miserable with sorrow, I promise to be married to you tomorrow. If you make me bankrupt and poor, I promise to be married to you tomorrow. If you get so sick, I have to nurse you the rest of my life. I promise to be there tomorrow. When you stand at the altar and get married, you aren't promising you love this person today. We all know that. It's written all over your face, right? I'm a happy, joyful couple. Look how they love one another. We know that. You're not promising that. You're promising that tomorrow I'm going to love you. For the rest of your life, I'm going to love you, no matter what happens. That's a call to incredible faithfulness. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for his people. And the Bible says that he married his bride and he is faithful and will never forsake her. And so he calls the man in the marriage to love his wife as he loves the church, to cherish her, to provide for her, protect her, serve her, even at cost to himself. And he calls the wife to respond like the church responds to Jesus. Respond how? With, with love, affection, respect, to honor. That's what he calls us to do. And to do it permanently. Permanently. Because he never forsakes his bride. He never turns her away in exchange for a different lover. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always takes her back when she wanders. He's always patient with her in her weakness. He always cares for and provides for her and delights in her. Always. Permanently. And so what you should be looking for in a marriage partner is someone who will live out with you that drama, the drama of Jesus and his bride. You need to find somebody you need to go be gracious to, that you need to wake up every day and forgive and accept because God forgives and accepts you. I want you to see all that. This is a, marriage is meant to be a reflection of Jesus' own faithfulness and love. And so in verses 10 through 13, Mark Mark. We should say this about the text. Mark doesn't provide for you the exception to the rule. 
But Matthew does in Matthew 19, verse 9. Okay? Uh, you, you can't read Mark in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Jesus in Mark 9 appears to be saying there's absolutely no, under any circumstance, okay? in contrast to Moses in Deuteronomy 24, there's no occasion on which you can divorce. And yet, Matthew 19, 9 says, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so I, I, I want to be clear, the Bible does allow, it doesn't, it doesn't demand, but it does allow divorce in the cases of, of un, sexual unfaithfulness. You don't, you're not commanded to divorce. You can choose to forgive and be reconciled. Um, but it does allow that. Jesus does allow that. Um, so the point is that Jesus is faithful. He wants us to be faithful. He can help us be faithful. So we said those three things. He cares for us. He loves us. He's patient with broken people. He, he, he is the model for faithfulness and our only source of help to be faithful. Now let me make five points of application to you as a college student. The first is to say something about women in general. The Bible's view of women. Jesus' view of women. Okay, because there will be, and I don't know if you hear it or not, there will be people in your classroom, some with PhDs and just fellow peers, who will say, well, Christianity is absolutely oppressive of women. It beats them down. If we could just get loose from Christianity, women would really be lifted up. But do you understand how Jesus is the one who lifts women up? You saw it in a number of ways. In the Old Testament written documents, far from God being hard-hearted towards women, he is permitting hard-hearted men to divorce so that the wife is free and yet has a certificate of divorce so that she has the ability to get married again so she's not left alone and destitute and lonely forever. It commands against marrying her again to make certain that the man doesn't trade her around like a piece of property. That protects her. And in this passage, Jesus clearly articulates the full equality of women and men when he goes against the Jewish custom of the day and not only says if a man divorces his wife, but turns right around and says, and if a wife divorces her husband. That was totally against the culture of their day. And, and, and so he's, he's, he's equalizing men and women in the, in the covenant relationship. He's showing you that that's what we were always meant to be men and women made equally in the image of God and so I want you to see this that Jesus is really lifting up women against the grain of his own culture the Jews would have never done that and everywhere Christianity flourishes and I don't mean where people give lip service to it but I mean where Christianity flourishes you will find that women flourish as well that they are not degraded, but are treated with great respect. The second thing I want you to think about is the issue of honesty and forgiveness. Divorce hurts. And sometimes the people who are hurt the worst are the children, as, as the family is torn apart. However, oftentimes the ch- children are overlooked. I don't know if that's been your experience. Uh, sometimes the children are actually relied upon by the parent to be a counselor, to be a source of, of close, intimate affection and love in a way that parents were designed to be for their children. And the roles get reversed as the parents are suffering in the midst of the divorce. And that isn't right. 
And, and I want you to know that God hates divorce. Malachi makes that absolutely clear. The Bible says God hates divorce and, and, and the man who covers his wife with violence does violence to her even through divorce. And God grieves the sins that cause it. And it's important for you to do that too. To grieve if this has been your experience. Just like in Genesis when God grieved that he had made mankind because of all the violence they committed. So God is grieved at the violence a man does when he throws away the wife of his youth. And yet we're tempted to ask, all right, well, if he hates divorce, if he's grieved by it, why does he let it happen to people? And part of the answer is found in this passage, that God permits what he does not want. That God allows what he is actually against. Not because of any fault in him, but because he knows our faults. And that we are persistently prone to hard-heartedness. And so in God's patience, as we've said, he is dealing patiently with hard-hearted sinners and permitting them to continue sinning rather than just wiping them out. And so Moses allowed it. And Jesus is the God who brings good out of evil. A God who forgives the broken. A God who dwells with the contrite of heart. And it may be in your experience you need to learn to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Maybe you need to learn to forgive your parents' faults. Maybe you need to drink deeply of the gospel of forgiveness so that your heart will be free to do that. If you, um, if you have experienced divorce or you want to be helpful to friends who have, uh, and you want to know more about the effects of divorce in their life, Um, I would highly recommend a book called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce uh, by Wallerstein. It's called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce by Wallerstein. It it is a landmark study, 25-year research study of the children of divorce following the lives of those children with interviews at year 5 and at year 10 and at year 15 and at year 25. Um, hundreds of case studies. Uh, she's compiled her conclusions. It's very readable, full of many biographies of children who've reacted in various ways to parental divorce. It's extremely insightful. It's been helpful to people I've recommended it to in this kind of case. So if that's you, I'd, I'd highly recommend it, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. Third thing I want to say to you by way of personal application um, is to say to you, Wait. Wait, never be afraid to wait for the one the Lord has for you. They say that a woman marries heaven or hell on the, way, on the day that she becomes a bride. Now that's not really true. No man is that bad and no man is that good. But it is better to be single and happy and content to serve Jesus unmarried than to be miserable and disgruntled serving a rotten husband. Never be afraid to wait for the one has uh, the one the Lord has for you. And I want you to watch out because the closer you get to senior year, more couples you know will get married. They'll get engaged. And I want to I want to encourage you not to push for something just because you think it looks good 
for them and you want to make it happen for you. I'll just tell you my own experience and the very short version of it is May of my senior year, my best friend from high school, my best friend from college, and my college roommate of, of two years all got married on three separate weekends in May, and it was in two of those weddings. And, I mean, it just looked great. They married wonderful women, and my heart was like, oh, this looks wonderful. And I was about to go off for a summer um, at camp where all these college student leaders were being brought in to do camp with kids. So I, I was going to run out, and like, half the leaders were going to be women. And so I made this strange, I know, but I made this sort of covenant with myself that I would not, for the summer, try to go out and make something happen just to make it happen because I was lonely. And that I would, I would try to wait on the Lord. The great irony, of course, is some of you know, that's the exact summer I met Melinda. When I, when I was determined... Not to find somebody. And I, I did hold off right to the bitter end of that summer before I started really showing, uh, you know, well, she, was, she could see it. But, you know, when you kind of come out with it, that was towards the end. But I don't know what will happen for you. I'm not promising that for you. I, I'm just saying, don't be afraid. You can trust a loving Savior to provide for you in his own good time. Don't be afraid to wait. But then I would say to you, don't wait. Don't wait. The gap has never been larger between when puberty begins and when people get married culturally. And so some, some will spend 10 or 20 years sexually ready and longing for marriage, but unmarried. And there's a tremendous amount of loneliness and serial dating and hooking up and breaking up with all kinds of sexual temptations associated with it. And I want to say to you, look, if your body is on fire, with passion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it is better to marry than to burn. And you should take it as an indication that God has not given you the gift of singleness. Okay, quit fooling yourself. If, if you're on fire, okay, and you can't control it, you don't have the gift of singleness, and quit fooling yourself that you do. And, and I would say to you, for some, if you find the right person, and the, and, and you know that this is the person, and they know this is the person. It is, better be to, it is better to be together, poor, yet happy, than separate and lonely while you work for your riches. So you can walk into marriage wealthy. And, and, um, and in, in that regard, in terms of don't wait, look, marriage is a risk. Marriage is a risk. You will, you will not have certainty until the day you say I do that this is the person you should be married to. Now, now I know you're going to be like, okay, I'm 99.999% sure, but you know, God didn't put it in the Bible, so I just don't. You know, but, but here, I can guarantee you this. The moment you say I do and they say I do, God intends for you to be married to that person the rest of your life. You will have absolutely certain, absolute certainty on that day because God wants you to keep the vow that you make. And until then, it's marriage is a bit of a risk. And the last thing is this, pray. Pray. Because Jesus does care deeply about marriage and he cares deeply for you. And he wants you to live the drama and dance of he and his bride he can be trusted to find you a partner. So ask him. 
Ask him and keep on asking him. And don't quit asking him. My parents, I don't think they ever asked the Lord for a spouse for me. They're not believers. My, My wife's parents started praying for her spouse when they conceived her. They prayed me into the kingdom as part of that. But you, take control of your future by praying to the Lord. Saying, oh Lord, provide and help me see it when it's right. Oh friends, because we have hard and selfish hearts, relationships are difficult. But there is hope. Because Jesus found a selfish bride and he married her. And he holds on to her. And he forgives her. And he can help us, men and women, be like him. Let's pray. Father, help us. Jesus, help us. We need you. Our culture is a disaster. Maybe our families are a mess. Maybe we ache. But maybe we long to be united with somebody. Lord, provide for us and help us to walk in your ways. So pour out your grace in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friends, that's all I got tonight.